Well, good morning. How are you doing? I'm getting some response. You know, that's one of the most important questions that you should answer for yourself. How are you doing? In Mark chapter eight, Jesus says something that is so significant because he says this. He says, I'm I'm paraphrasing. We'll get to the actual text. He says, make sure you don't lose your soul. How are you doing? Are you at peace? Are you doing okay? You know what? Being okay is not an easy thing. I don't know about you, but I've discovered that life is hard on the soul. And the soul is that interior part of us where we fear, feel fear, where we, we, we worry. It's the place where we hope and we dream, where we feel joy and peace and love. I mean, it, it is where you feel loss and disappointment that place where you feel deep regret, remorse and guilt, that place where you feel anxiety or feel the soul is the inner part of us. It's the real part of us. You know, our soul is there because way back when it's recorded in Genesis where God created Adam and Eve, he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and so he created the form of of Adam But then he did something very unique that he didn't do with any other creature that he created. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And and Adam awoke in the presence of God. And Adam was unique because the breath of God was in him. He, He was the image bearer of God himself. He had the capacity to think and love and decide and choose and Our soul is the most important thing that we have. Our souls live forever. And in this passage, Jesus warns the people that are listening to him as he's talking about some real important things. He says, you you just gotta make sure that you don't lose your soul. Um, Jesus had come to rescue our souls. Jesus ends with a question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so the most valuable thing that we have is our soul, who we are, deep within. The honest truth is, I'm not always okay. I know know what okay looks like and feels like, And I know where to go to get better because I think okay is when in the interior of my soul I can experience things like love. We all want to be loved. We all want to be able to love. I want to experience joy. I want to have peace. You know, I, I I want to have long suffering. You know what, when when you don't have long suffering, you get triggered by all kinds of things, things that are done to you on purpose or accidental. What an awful way to live. Uh, I wanna have patience. I, I want to be characterized from the depths of my soul to the people around me 
with kindness and gentleness. And, and you know where all of that comes from? That is all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? You get the Holy Spirit when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And, and, and then he infuses into us the living characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And every day, we know where to go to get back to good, even when we're not good. So let's read Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter, look, look at Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Wait a second here. The disciple is rebuking the rabbi? He, he rebuked him. But when he had turned around and, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I mean, he ends up by saying the day's coming when the Son of Man is going to come and he will be in the he will be full of glory in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And this is this is where the world comes to a great conclusion. Three things I want to look at. Number one is Jesus is the Christ. This was a watershed moment for the disciples. Jesus asked the people, um, you know, who are people saying that I am? And their response shows that the people are realizing that something extraordinary is going on in the life and ministry of Jesus. He had such power. His ability to teach was was beyond anything that ever heard be, they, they had heard before. He could heal the sick, raise the dead. I mean, so they're trying to figure out why is Jesus so powerful? And their conclusion is, ah, we think maybe it's John the Baptist. Let me just point out, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. So they're saying he must be John the Baptist come back from the dead. Or maybe he's Elijah. Did you know that, uh, just a fun fact, Elijah is one of the two men in the Old Testament who did not die, but, but they, go figure it out, go read the passage. It's Enoch and Elijah. Elijah was taken up to heaven at the end of his ministry in a, in a fiery chariot. He, he did not die. So they, they're thinking, wow, this is the premier prophet? I mean, 
Could it be that Elijah came back and this is Elijah right here in front of us? Or maybe he's one of the other prophets. But they, they were very clear about one thing. There was something out of this world, supernatural happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. And they, were, they didn't know what in the world was the real explanation. And then Jesus takes the question and he turns it right to the disciples and he says to them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter immediately says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the long-awaited savior of the world. You are the one who is gonna make everything that is wrong in this world, he's gonna make it right. And Jesus accepted that answer and by doing so acknowledged that he truly was the son of God, that he had come to save, to forgive, to make everything that is wrong right. And, and then he told them, now I don't want you to tell anybody this. Why? Why, why, why didn't Jesus want people to tell you? Je Jesus was on a, he had a clear mission. He had a time frame that he was working with and he knew if that had gone out in, uh, inappropriately early, then the the time of his, his arrest and crucifixion would have happened and it would have been premature because he still has, we're only in chapter eight of Mark. He's gotta to go to chapter 16, okay? You get what I'm trying to say? But Jesus lays it out there. Let me tell you what's gonna happen. I'm gonna suffer. The son of man is gonna suffer. He's gonna be rejected by the elders the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Everything that he said would happen, exactly happened. The plan of God was always to redeem human beings, to bring them back, because God knows that we're not okay, and so he came to make us okay. Jesus' name means he will save his people from their sin. John the Baptist announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. I mean, the disciples were thinking that Jesus' rise to celebrity and power was a path to a throne. And Jesus interrupts that thought by saying, well, the path to the throne will include a cross and a barrier and a resurrection. So guys, know what's about to happen. You know, I, I love Peter because Peter articulates what many of us think and feel. I mean, when you think about it, how absurd is it that Peter is rebuking Jesus? You know what I'm trying to say? But he does. And Jesus says, in no uncertain terms, Peter, what you're saying here makes me say in response, get thee behind me, Satan. You are articulating the sentiment of Satan. You don't want me to go to a cross. Satan didn't want him to go to a cross until he put him on it. How many times have you and I corrected God because we didn't know like or understand what in the world was going on in our lives. And instead of trusting, we get angry and bitter and turn away from God. We're just like Peter. He's just more vocal. You know, sometimes God, he's so big. He's so eternal. He's so powerful. It is impossible to fully understand God. Do you think that you can understand 
the plan of God who lives outside of time and manages things on a, on a scale that you and I can't even imagine? In fact, Isaiah 55 says this about God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your, your thoughts. And so here, here's what I have to say to everyone in this room. Prepare to be confused. Prepare to be frustrated by what God allows and doesn't allow. If you're gonna submit to a God who rules sovereignly above all things, you're not gonna always understand. But you can always trust. You can trust through your tears. You can trust through your celebrations. Jesus calls his people, you know, secondly, to deny themselves. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, wait a second here. So Jesus is going to a cross, and anyone who follows Jesus needs to take up a cross? And most of the world says, I'm out. Don't want to follow this king. I mean, to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow Jesus? to trust him with absolutely everything in my life, to bring myself to absolute and complete surrender to God who sometimes confuses me and I don't understand. Um, and, and Jesus, he says, but I want you to understand this. If you try to hold on to your life your way, you will lose your life. If you will deny yourself and follow me, you'll gain your life. You know, this whole idea of um, denying ourselves is not a popular idea. Um, I think a lot of people just want to have a little bit of God. You know what I'm saying? I just need a little salt and pepper of God in my life. I need to be able to check the box when it says at the hospital, what's your religion? I got to have something to check, right? So I'm going to take a little bit of God. It's kind of a tra transactional label that I can use when I need it. But this idea of surrendering my entire life to God to, to deny myself, I don't want to lose control. I think I'm out. You can't manage God. You know, sometimes we want a God that we can manage. We want God when we need him but we really don't want him telling us what to do. We really don't want him to stifle us. We want to express ourselves and do whatever we want, whenever we want it. And Jesus says that's not the way. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You can't halfway give yourself to God and experience the beauty of his plan and purpose in your life. It's all or nothing. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul takes this same theme and develops it a little bit, more even. And this is what he has to say, Romans 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You, Paul says, here's the deal. If you want to really follow Jesus, 
you've got to be a living sacrifice. They knew what happened to sacrifices. Sacrifices were offered on the altar, and it, it happened all the time, but sacrifices died. But what, G, what Paul is saying is, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to put yourself on the altar of God and give him absolutely everything that you have without question, without demands, just surrender. And if you'll do that, if you'll deny yourself and surrender, you will discover life like you've never seen it before. You know, I love, I love how he puts this. He says, why, why would you do this? Well, by the mercies of God. Why would I surrender everything to God? Well, in view of the mercies of God. I mean, God is good and loving, and he wants a better life for us. In fact, his generosity and goodness and mercy is what <clears throat> enables us to say, I'm not really sure what all this means, but I am going to completely surrender my life to Jesus Christ and follow him and do his will. And that's 100% against how our culture is teaching us to not deny yourself, to express yourself, to be true to yourself. All of the ideas, desires, and feelings, and things you would like to decide to do, you should do them. That is the only way to live with integrity. But Jesus comes up and says, no, 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 that's actually the opposite. I want you to deny yourself, because by denying yourself and surrendering to me, I can open up a whole brand new life for you. Um, have you ever watched a two-year-old? You know what a two-year-old is like? They're adorable, first of all. Okay. But they want what they want when they want it, and they'll scream, and they'll fight, and they'll grab, and they'll, okay, until they get it. And a two-year-old who wants to run into the middle of the road because they want to be free and away from mom takes a look at mom and is running away from mom into the street and then she brings that beautiful mom hand on over that child and grabs that child and snatches them up and the child's offended by the mom but what the child doesn't realize is mom just saw the car about to hit that little girl. Here we are. We're two-year-olds. And, and in this passage, Paul is assuring us, as Jesus did, that the reasonable thing for us to do is to surrender our lives to God completely because he created us. He knows us. He loves us. He wants the best for us. God doesn't create children to torment them. That is just, that's a lie from the devil. God creates his children in order to bless them. He, he wants to, us to enjoy every good thing he has created for us. And no one has ever loved us so much as to send his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross to pay for our sin and then offers us the Holy Spirit of God to be with us every single day, to guide us and bless us and teach us and give us wisdom. I don't know how to be this age. Have you, I've never been this age before. Like I used to only know people in their 60s. And now I am a person in my 60s. I hate to admit that to you because I know many of you thought I was about 35. Okay, but I don't know how to be a good grandfather. I'm just learning that. It's like I get to know stuff and then things change and I change and I'm, I'm like back to square one all over again. And I have this God who can be trusted, 
who is good and wise and willing to help us through every year, every season from now until the day we take our step into eternity where we will be forever in his presence. That is why it is a reasonable thing for us to get on our knees every day and to surrender our lives to God and say, God, here's my life, take it. Do what you want. Forgive me where I need to be forgiven. And I can name a few things. You should always be able to name a few specifics, I'm just saying. And I don't know what to do in this situation. And he'll say, okay. Now you're getting somewhere. We need to surrender every single day. A life that doesn't know how to deny themselves is by definition a selfish life. Selfish people don't know how to serve the people around them. Selfish people can't really enjoy the richness of a love relationship with authenticity and, and true emotion. If you're playing defense because you always have to be right, because you're protecting self, you're never going to find it. One of the greatest things we teach our kids is don't do whatever you want. Deny yourself. No, you can't slap that other little child in your class because they said something mean to you. Yes, you do need to give and share. And yes, you do need to be polite. And yes, you do need to, okay. Oh, but I, I, don't, I don't feel very respectful. Well, get over it and be respectful. That's, what, that's how I was trained. Third, what we need to do is we need to surrender our lives every day, every day. I got an experiment for you for the next seven days. Get on your knees. I know this, I, I'm all about posture and how I force myself to get into the position of understanding who's God and who's not, because not, I tend to think I am. But when I get on my knees, and I know some of it's hard to, some of you can't get on your knees, and you shouldn't, because you got stuff that's going on. But if you can get on your knees, if you can raise your hands and surrender, I mean literally, so that people looking at you when you're praying, they wonder what in the world's going on. Good, let them wonder. And say, God, today I surrender to you. God, when I ask myself, how am I doing? Sometimes I don't even know. But today, I surrender my hopes, my dreams, my plans. I surrender my money, my relationships. God, I need you to help me make decisions. 
I, I, I'm just asking you to guide me. To follow Jesus is to deny ourselves. And Jesus says that if you lose your life by denying yourself, you will actually gain your life. And the, the, the warning of Jesus is really this. Don't lose your soul. It's the most valuable thing you have. The reason I can surrender my life to God is because I don't think anybody is more for me than God. I don't think anybody loves me more than God. I don't think anybody is as forgiving toward me as God. I don't think anyone is as delighted to give me good things as God is. So I'm going to believe he is good and worthy of my praise, my adoration, my surrender. And I look around at a lot of lives, a lot of people who are miserable and struggling, and I'm willing to, I'm willing to take this. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, by the way, is, he's, a, he's kind of a brilliant writer, uses poetry and images to kind of get us past our presuppositions and see um, some theological truths in a new light. But in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a man who is tormented by a red lizard that sits on his shoulder and mocks him all day long. For Lewis, the lizard represents the indwelling sin all of us struggle with. Hey, you all have a red lizard. Did you know that? I have a red lizard. You know that indwelling thing in our lives. And the thing can change, but it's always the red lizard. And it mocks us, and it torments us, and it taunts us. And for Lewis, the lizard represents indwelling sin that we all struggle with. And an angel comes and promises to get rid of the red lizard uh, and the man, um, for a moment, takes great joy in the thought of being done with this red lizard. He's thrilled. I can be rid of this thing. And then he realizes the way the angel will get rid of it is the angel begins to glow and he becomes fiery hot. He will kill the lizard. But to re recognize, beginning to recognize the implications, the young man says, well, now maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. Can't we just do this another time? The angel says, in this moment are all moments. Either you want the red lizard to live or you do not. The lizard, recognizing the hesitation of the, of the young man, begins to mock and plead at the same time. Be careful, he says. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fight, fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. How, it's not natural. How can you live? You'll only be sort of a ghost, not a real man, And you, as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it's not natural for us. I know there is no real pleasures, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? I'll be so good. I admit, I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. 
I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. That's the le- lizard bargaining. Isn't it amazing how that we hate and love our tormenting sins at the same time? C.S. Lewis, he typifies the compromise that we tend to move toward. I want to manage it. I don't want to get rid of it. But then, at the end of the story, the angel grasps the lizard with the fiery hands and chokes it so that it dies and falls on the ground. But then, when it hits the ground, it becomes a stallion. And the young man gets on it and rides. What had been the ruler is now ruled. What had been his master, he now masters. What had ridden him, he now rides. See, denying yourself, surrendering to God, asking him to free us from what torments us is where we come alive. And it's scary and frightening and hard and wonderful. This is total surrender. This is what Jesus says it was going to take. You just need to surrender. You know, the one thing I love about reading through um, Mark's gospel is, in the other gospels, Peter is such an interesting character. When Peter first meets Jesus, and Jesus tells him to throw his net on, on the other side of the boat, this is way back in the beginning of their, of their encounter together, and, and that net fills up, and Peter with the other fishermen start to pull in all the fish, and, and as they're, they're working so hard, because they've never seen a catch this large. It was so amazing. And then Peter comes to his senses as he looks around and he looks at Jesus and this is what he had to say. Because he realizes the presence of God is here. He says to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man. You know, Peter then gets the call from Jesus, come and follow me, I'll, I'll make you fishers. And he goes. And then Peter, you know, he's always got something to say. And one day when they're out on the sh- on the boat and the waves are so rough that they think they're all gonna die and they see Jesus walking toward them on the boat. What does Peter do? Peter says, would you ask me to come to you, Jesus? I wanna walk on the water too. I love Peter. And he gets out and he starts to walk for a few steps and then he begins to sink and then Jesus has to rescue him again. And Peter says in this moment, you're the Christ. And then he says, you shouldn't die. And Jesus has to rebuke him, get thee behind me, Satan. At the end of his his time with Jesus, he denies Jesus three times. And Jesus then, on the Sea of Galilee, on the shore, forgives him, forgives him, and forgives him. So here's what, what I want to point out is that this following Jesus is more than an hour orientation where you sign the contract. It's a decision to follow him and to surrender to him every single day of your life. 
You say, well, I'm afraid to follow Jesus. I'm afraid I'll mess up. You will mess up, I promise you. But no one loves you more and paid for your sin like Jesus. He'll pick you up as long as you keep coming back, as long as you keep surrendering. He says, I want you, that's what I want you to do. I want you to deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross. And in that, you will preserve your soul for all of eternity. Will you bow your heads, please?